G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Today we're joined by Rene Vaz. Rene is the owner and founder of Manic Tackle Project, unquestionably the largest fly fishing business in the Southern Hemisphere. Rene grew up in Hamilton, New Zealand, and his first business interest in fly fishing was tying flies for local tackle stores. He later studied fisheries biology, worked in fly shops, became a regular contributor to the leading fly fishing magazines, and competed as the youngest team member of the New Zealand fly fishing team a team that went on to win bronze in the 1999 World Fly Fishing Championships. After university, René moved to the UK, where he gained certifications in both single hand and spay casting. Over there, he worked as an advisor for Europe's largest fly fishing retailer, whilst further establishing himself as a writer and photographer for many UK and US publications. Drawn back to New Zealand by its trout fishing, René worked successfully with Composite Developments, a leading rod manufacturer and distributor during that time. By 2008, Rene craved something more, and with his wife Susan, started Manic Tackle Project out of their garage. By partnering with the best fly shops and brands, Manic grew rapidly. Today, they represent Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Waterworks Lampson, CNF Design, Able Reels, Ross Reels, Airflow, Trout Hunter, Loon, and they build fly rods and reels under their own brands, Primal and Fly Lab. Rene's on-water fly fishing experience combined with his deep technical knowledge of materials and the industry, is why he's so globally well-respected in fly fishing. We have no hesitation in stating that he is one of the most talented rod designers of our time. Rene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. <laughs> well done, Andrew. <laughs> Bit of a speech. That was long, wasn't it? <laughs> that was long. I, th- I don't think I put enough commas <laughs> in there. I was actually <laughs> struggling <laughs> for moisture. <laughs> um, mate, how was the trip over? Good to oh, get across the ditch? So good to be here. Um, I can't believe we've been locked out of um, Australia for three years. And um, so, yeah, incredible. Really yeah, great to be here. It is. Yep. No, it sounds like uh, COVID's beyond us and we'll be getting to New Zealand. And likewise, it's great to welcome a few Kiwis to Australia. Well, the problem is I think the Kiwis uh, are still stuck um, where you guys were six months ago. But I'm glad you guys are over it and um, moving forward. And um, we need to too. Yeah, we've all had it now, haven't we? Except Ross. I haven't, yeah. It only attacks the weak. I bet you have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, the uh, you know what have you been up to lately, mate? You've been to the US for a a little bit of a trip. Yeah, I've just been to the US, um, and um, so I I, I caught up with the crew from Sims. So I went to iCast show. They were um, our primary brand who was there. Um, so it was good. Uh, they've just sold, actually. So um, Yeah, it was, big news. Um, big industry news. Big industry news. Heard so it here first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, uh, you guys know you first. So um, so that's um, cool. I think it's actually really exciting times. It's always a bit frightening when um, one of your primary brand sells. Um, but I think it's a good thing. So uh, Vista Outdoors, who have bought Sims, um, have a number of really great brands Brands like Camelback, a lot of um, right, uh, mountain biking brands like uh, Fox Racing, Gyro and Bell. And I reckon they're going to invest in the brand. Um, I think it's a good time. Um, Sims has grown and it's, it's really iconic. And um, 
you know, a big company like that needs needs cash and it needs infrastructure and it needs skills. And uh, I think Vista's the right partner. So I'm really glad. I won't name names, but I'm glad it didn't sell to some other um, places because sometimes these um, big brands end up uh, going somewhere else and it's kind of where all the collection of brands slowly die. So yeah. uh, Vista is, I think, quite the opposite. So Exciting times for Sims, no doubt. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, loosely, we want to make this episode broadly based on the fly fishing industry and I guess more specifically, uh, we'd like to talk to you about some of the major developments in fly rod design and development. Um, let's first get a, a bit of a history on, on you and on Manic. So um, your fly fishing, it was Hamilton, yeah, that where you grew yeah, up? Yeah, so I grew up in Hamilton, yeah. Yep. Not, not heaps of good stuff happens in Hamilton. but um, <laughs> Sounds but like Denolquin. Yeah, yeah, so that's where I grew up. But um, the good thing is there was really good access to um, a variety of fly fishing, so from small streams um, the Rotorua Lakes is really close by and then it's pretty close to Taupo, that whole um, Taupo fishery. So I, I got some pretty broad experience. So um, rivers and lakes. It was, yeah. yeah. Was yeah. it a, a river first that you fished or a lake? Uh, I started off on small streams, really. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, do they have big fish in the small streams around Hamilton or is that more? A oh, by your standards, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so look, yeah, the, the, there's some... Some decent fish th- there. I, I can't say I caught them early on, um, but there's some really good fishing around Hamilton for sure. Yeah, and addict from the get go, would it sort of pretty much start to, to like that early obsession stage of? Um, I mean, remember this is kind of pre-internet, right? So I'm getting old now. Um, so I would just go to the library and get literally twelve books and read them cover to cover, and. I've still never read a novel before in my life, so I don't read books, but I've read, I would read a fly fishing book from one end to the other. And so I just obsessed about it. And I think fly fishing was in that phase back then where you had to go and find that information. I think now, I mean, people even listen to podcasts now, right? So <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> so We're up to 36 listeners after we got Scott Zantelakis <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> So now it's um, how you consume and get uh, information about fly fishing is is totally transformed. But back then it was either your um, grandfather was into fly fishing and taught you about it or you had to really dig hard. And I was in the uh, uh, Indian immigrant kind of category who my grandfather definitely wasn't a fly fisherman. And so I um, dug hard, just read all the books and obsessed about it. Yeah, cool. And um, like you were commercially tying flies what what happened there? You were well, it still at school? Com- or? It wasn't commercially viable, but I was... Um, no, I think what it was happening is I was always in these fishing shops and I was always tying flies. So then it co- got to the point where I would just sell some of my flies back to them. And I, I, don't, I can't remember if that good enough, but they bought them, put them there and sold me some other stuff in the shop um, was generally it. So it was pretty much a, more of a contra deal initially um but um yeah there was at one stage where i was um tying a bunch of flies um a little bit commercially but most of it was just to kind of just purchase more fly fishing product (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm sure they looked after you on pricing maybe Uh, maybe (laughs) (laughs) um and so then the you studied at university fisheries biology was it yeah so i mean i um you know kind of didn't know what to do after school, so I went to university because I liked fishing. 
And so I just studied as close to fishing as I could, which was fisheries biology. And then after um, three years, graduated and um, wasn't sure what to do. So I just did a master's degree for another two years in fisheries biology. So that's... Just to um, string it out a little longer. Just to string it out a little longer. <laughs> that and uni then, lifestyle is a good one. Yeah, it was incredible. And then I, I, like there was, I've never been able to fish as much as I did when I was at university. So I think by the end of it, I was New Zealand champion and I had a master's degree. Uh, the reason I was New Zealand champion is because I was at university. You know, that's, that's <laughs> it. So, um, and then after that, um, I decided I needed to get a job, but I never, ever worked in science. Um, I've always worked in fishing tackle. But I think that scientific background was I mean, pretty good, especially when it comes to products. And I think often when it comes down to it, you're, you're dealing with factories or engineers. And, and, and so having that kind of... I wouldn't say I've got an engineering background, but uh, you know, having that kind of scientific kind of basis to how you um, break down uh, creating a good product is um, really beneficial. Yeah, cool. And then off to the UK. Yeah, so I lived in the UK uh, for a year, and um, so really just stayed. Just, just a year. You obviously packed a fair bit into just a year. Yeah, it was just a year, um, and uh, so I came back to New Zealand for a, a, a job, but. Um, I um, yeah, worked for a company called Sportfish who, at that stage, they, I think they were the biggest um, uh, retailer in fly fishing in Europe and, um, you know, a really good, iconic um, company. And it was good because I, I think the Australian market's probably been more advanced, I think, than the New Zealand market, especially with stores like yourselves. And um, uh, But, uh, you know... I suddenly got exposure to all of the really great brands um, back then. And so, you know, I went from selling cheaper products at, at a retail level to dealing with, um, you know, premium US-made fly rods and able reels and stuff. So it was kind of really cool. So I think um, that was quite an eye-opener for me on the products I was dealing with. Um, and... Um, and then the, the the culture around casting in the UK was really really interesting, so I immersed myself in that. Cool. So, it, um, did that give you a bit of inspiration? You know, coming back to New Zealand, did you maybe get a bit of uh, insight as to how far the industry could be pushed if if there was the energy there? Yeah, I think um, look, every experience opens your eyes, right? And I think it gave me more of a global view. Um, and it just gave me an idea of, uh, I guess, you're right, as how far it could be pushed. I think um, I've been lucky enough uh, to just, I guess, build really good friendships with loads of different people in these top brands around the world. And so, and that I would say they are just long-term friendships, which is great. And some of my best friends who I would call up for a chat are strong industry people. And uh, and that's kind of what we've built um, Manic with, yeah. Did you do much fishing in your time in the UK? Oh, yeah, a lot, and especially still water fishing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I did a little bit of the chalk stream fishing, which was really great. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously some of the water is just upstream dry fly only. I don't know why, because downstream woolly buggers just <laughs> absolutely crushed it, you know. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think the thing which was quite educational and I was really obsessed about it at that point in time with my comp fishing was the the still water fishing I think that there's a really great culture there and mm. um, it certainly pushed it to a really different level yeah I'd say 95% of my fishing over there was all the lakes yeah yeah sure it's just it that's just what you that was what was accessible totally yeah were you comp fishing whilst in the UK 
No. But I was fishing with comp anglers, which is probably the, the difference, yeah. So were these guys that you met as a New Zealander competing that were representing the UK or...? Yeah, yeah, so some of them were representing the UK or Wales, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, cool. Um, and that, a lot of those guys, were they in the industry? Like back yeah. then I'm thinking, you know, so Gareth, was he, he would have been... Yeah, so a, fr- a really good friend of mine, Gareth Jones, who's um, one of the directors at Airflow, he was, he, yeah, he was in the Welsh team and um, whilst I was in the New Zealand team and, and so I spent a fair bit of time fishing with him while I was in the UK. Yeah, and there would have been, I guess, a lot of... Was Simon Goresworth around? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I worked with Simon at Sportfish, yeah, so classically. So Simon uh, was in the UK team, Yeah, Gareth in the Welsh, and I was in the New Zealand team. It sounds so. like a bit of a, a time where there was a lot of younger guys that uh, were pretty um, focused on maybe being in the industry long term then. Yeah, like, totally. And yeah. you guys were all pretty well connected at that that point in time. So it's, I don't know, it sounds weird. Yeah, like Simon was um, a, f- a friend of mine because I'd met him uh, the year before in the Worlds in Australia. And so, um, and then when I was in the UK, I didn't realise he was actually super famous and stuff like that. I just thought it was Simon from the bus, you know. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so um, it's not until you're in the UK that uh, people come in and, and, and want a lesson with Simon, they didn't want to talk to the rest of us. And you're like, oh, fair play, okay, whatever. Yeah. Um, so you then moved back to New Zealand uh, working with Composite Developments and how many years did you spend there? Yeah, so I was there for seven years. Yeah, and then a short stint with clothing, work clothing or something? I was like that you selling kind of nurses' uniforms for a little <laughs> bit. Um, I was selling other... Other uniforms as well, but that was probably the one which was memorable, yeah. Yeah. So is that what pushed you back into fishing, doing something that shit? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was. It, honestly, I, um, I've i always woken up in the morning and loved going to work, except for that period of time when I just actually didn't enjoy work. But um, what was good is enjoying um, – I learned a lot about apparel. At like a, So that company was uh, manufacturing in New Zealand – and um, so I, I learned so much about apparel, which I didn't think was ever going to be valid. And um, but it's been really useful now. We deal with Sims, and uh, we're in the uh, apparel business. And, um, and and I think apparel's become actually a really great transformation of um, how we look at fishing tackle and how we equip ourselves to have a good day out, out on the water. Um, so, at what point then did you start thinking? Oh, you know, maybe a, a wholesale business of my own in New Zealand. Oh, um, it was viable. I, I could have never dreamed that Manic would have kind of grown to the company it is now, and I, and, and it's it's obviously grown to that because we've got great brands and and um, and and they um, you know push some volume. Um, but um, I think it wasn't necessarily this perfect strategic thing. It was um, I initially started with Gareth again from Airflow uh, was my friend, and um, he was looking for. Some assistance. I'd always helped him with um, his New Zealand distributors, and um, so then he got to the point of saying, "Oh, hey, look, why don't you just do it yourself?" And so we did, and um, and then we pulled a couple of other brands on board. Jim um, from Scott jumped on board straight away, and um, and 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 then we immersed ourselves, especially in in, in designing flies, um, was probably one of our core things, and yeah. um, and we went, went from there. So a little bit clumsy at, at start, it sounds oh. like, just starting small and then going, oh, shit, this is actually working. You know, maybe we can build on this. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, I mean, we didn't start with money. I've never, you know, 
uh, money is something you definitely don't need to talk about for too long. But um, you know, we we didn't start with anything, no trust funds, no cash or anything. It was um, literally credit card loans and a garage. And um, you know, my wife was incredibly supportive, although. If she'd known how um, leveraged and <laughs> and uh, clumsy it was, <laughs> she probably should have shouldn't have been. Um, no no point stressing it with that stuff at home. No, no, that's <laughs> the detail we didn't really talk about. Yeah. Um, so, were there any mentors during that time? Like, obviously, Gareth, you were pretty close with with him, and he he was in the industry. Any other any people that you, you think made a, a oh. lasting mark on you? Or? Look, I, I think my mentors were probably in years before that. I think, um, yeah, so you mentioned I worked for Composite Development. So um, Marty Johansson, who was the owner, um, was a huge mentor for me and it was a really great time for me of um, working for that company and um, had a really good time. We were manufacturing rods in New Zealand, so it was interesting. I really learned a lot from him about rods. And um, and I think I, I worked really hard um, and... Uh, uh, so he was definitely a, a mentor for me, and um, it was probably before that time. I think the manic period, uh, and the term manic probably sums it up as it was just a heads down, um, you know, um, working insane hours to get the ball rolling. And you know, guys like yourself, Andrew, of meeting people and working together, and we just just as much as we formed really great relationships with our brands who we know, our relationships with our retailers is critical. I think one of our big things is being able to develop product for the New Zealand market and the Australian market and work with people to get that product right. And so, and as much as I've got a great fishing background, which you've totally oversold over the last little bit, is I don't know at all. And, and, and fly fishing is never something you can know at all. So the key is, is working with people like you guys and going, okay, cool, well, what are you guys fishing? So, you know, we're bringing out some new Euro rods this year. So it's because you guys are all fishing different stuff and you're talking about fishing, you know, light, not, you know, three weights and two weights and around that nine, nine and a half foot length. Well, that's great. Well, we don't fish those in New Zealand. That If, if I brought that up for the New Zealand market, we'd sell diddly squat. But... It's really relevant and it makes sense here. So because of those relationships, we're developing a really cool product, which I think catches people more fish and it's interesting. The whole thing just goes around in a circle, doesn't it, really? Yeah, you totally. know, we're, we're providing feedback and then you're providing the product. Um, the, the other thing that I think is really admirable, you know, talk about, I guess, the relationships in the, in the industry. The other thing is um, the, the team that you guys have, have had at Manic over the years have been a really – uh, passionate, dedicated team that have obviously helped you uh, get manic to the point that it is at today. You know, how do you how do you see that that fostering that kind of team environment within manic? That, that how important has that been to you? I reckon ninety percent of that question should go to my staff, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the answer is different, but I think um, probably at core, I. Th- uh, um, you talk about mentors and I think one of the values is trying to be that and I think, you know, we've helped to really build some people in the industry and, and, and give people opportunities um, and I think that's that's good. One of the things for us is, it's again a little bit of how we talk with each other is uh, I'm really open and I talk about everything. Um, everyone knows 
everything. Um, you know, I think my team were the first to know, um, other than all the Fly Fisher um, podcast <laughs> listeners, um, about, um, uh, you know, the Sim sale. And I think everyone was, uh, you know, felt that they got a heads up on it and uh, they didn't just read it in the headlines first. And But it, there's far more important details than that. And everyone's in-house and, and feels part of it. And outside of our office, I think we've built a really big community of expert anglers. We've had this... Um, kind of really big obsession uh, of um, elevating experts. Um, so in, if it's our social media, if it's um, any kind of content that we create or do, we've always tried to work where we can with experts. And it's not from a, um, there's two ways of looking at that. Is one, and what we've got, be, got to be careful of is creating an old boys club of um, the people we think of are the experts and that, that, that should never happen. But I think... It's or the people that pretend to be experts. Or p- people that pretend <laughs> to be, yeah, yeah, it's even worse, <laughs> right? But I think where we've tried, what we've tried to do is continue to find the people who are breaking ground and really know the most, and we work with them on developing product, and and then the content just kind of comes from that. And I think our internal team feels part of this really big uh, community, which is, is I think is really enriching for our company and. Um, and I think that 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 flow of um, energy goes both ways. Ultimately, it's about being a part of something that's far bigger than than Renee Vaz. Absolutely, it's it's about Manic and the family that is Manic. Totally, yeah. And and um, and I, I think we certainly when I, um, I we launched the company is I was writing and I was doing all these things, but it became really obvious early on that I wasn't the guy who was catching all the fish because I wasn't on the water all the time. And so suddenly, it's got to be bigger. Right, and um, you know, I think I again living in the UK was at the really early stages of um, the Euro nymphing development, and actually the really early stages of two hand. But you know, there are guys who are far more technical in those two categories than I am now, and so I can develop the product, but the real expertise is with other people, and that's good. Those guys that are on the water more than anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Probably at this point, so that doesn't sound like a complete advertorial for Manic Tackle Project. <laughs> uh, we're two other people on the panel uh, to, right now. We've got Peter and uh, and Roscoe. Um, any questions for, for Renee while we get... Well, we've got a few that came from Instagram, but maybe Peter can go first. And yeah, um, go I've had one I've wanted to ask this whole time. How big do you think the fly fishing industry can get in Australia and New Zealand and fly fishing as a sport in general? Oh... I reckon <laughs> here's probably my attitude on size. It's a little bit of how uh, I view our business. So it, it, our business has grown and it's a nice size company now, but I, um, I've i never been obsessed about size. And so yeah. probably with industry, I, I'm, again, I'm not obsessed about size. But I think the cool thing is, is um, you know, so it used to be the, 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 the sport where your grandfather used to have to teach you and it was really yeah. in-house and, and it was – but now it's not, and it's super diverse. And, you know, there's loads of women getting into it now. I think Australia's got a really great um, female um, angling community. New Zealand is building one too. I think um, we're seeing loads of young people getting into it. So I think that's probably um, what I would comment on more than anything. I think there's a really great move um for people to be outside and um, enjoy the outdoors, and I think 
you know, the last couple of years of COVID has probably taught us all that. Um, and, and I think the cool thing is, so for us, fly fishing's really uh, obviously a big part of our life. And if we can get a chance, we're going to spend days and days doing it, right? Yep. But I think the cool thing now is hopefully it becomes a part of people's life for, so that they might do it once a year and it not being so inaccessible that they can't do that. Uh, versus I think that's what it used to be, is you were either a fly fisherman or you weren't. But I, I like the idea of um, people who are hardcore into mountain biking, but they're in these areas and then they they feel it's something they can do and um, and, and go out and give it a nudge. And yeah. I think that's, that's, the, that's the best thing about a sport. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you can hear that rattling in the background, that's just Ross's ice maker, making sure that his, <laughs> his gin and tonics are cold. <laughs> yeah, I need to go top up with the ice. <laughs> he picks the perfect time to turn that thing off. <laughs> you told me to turn it off. <laughs> for you, mate, just for you. Yeah, that's um, you had a question though, Roscoe? Yeah, it was a question that came through on Instagram, actually. Um, obviously, Australia's got tropical climates, which New Zealand doesn't. What do you, uh, Manic Tackle Project, what's the range that you guys offer for that type of environment? Uh, so actually, really good point in the sense that we we stock a lot of product that we actually don't we don't sell in New Zealand. We only sell in Australia, and so I think um, actually from an apparel point of view, there's loads of apparel that is far more relevant to the Australian market from sun protection to um, there's some new garments there from Sims which have got cooling aspects to it. So as you sweat, the garment actually cools you down, which is uh, awesome. Um, and totally unnecessary in New Zealand. So um, we, we do that. I think a really good example is um, is a, one of our, and you, we talked about this line today, but um, one of our most popular saltwater fly lines, actually our most popular saltwater fly line, is the line what we developed for the Australian market, um, which is called our Flats Master. So it's a, it's a tropical line. and um, But, you know, developed with, uh, originally with Dave Bradley and Micah Adams and... Um, uh, you know, these guys who are on the water, saltwater fly fishing around Australia, and um, what we wanted to do is create a, um intermediate tip fly line. So it obviously fished crab patterns really perfectly on, the good, on a good angle, but the thing we did, which was different, is uh, where you guys are different on, on the flats is you're all fishing really big flies, right? So uh, generally flat flies um, around the world are a lot smaller than what you guys are throwing here so uh, we created it on a non-stretch core versus everyone else is on a monofilament core and um, so that non-stretch core is really critical for setting these big hooks uh, and so point being is you know there's quite a few um, products in our um, lineup which have got a lot of thought and a lot of detail um, in them and they're made totally got nothing to do with New Zealand it's, it's a real Australian product yeah awesome I think that's a great answer what was the first name of the person that sent that question in? That was Doug. Good on you, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Doug. <laughs> yeah, and that was a good one. Uh, any other ones? Uh, oh, there were dozens, but yeah, we had to. Yeah, no. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe not safe for the podcast format. No, R-rated. Yeah. So. <laughs> we picked the eyes out of him and yeah. we're limited to one question. Always great to hear from your girlfriend, though, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, so let's uh, let's move on with the chat and talk a little bit about fly rods and fly rod design. Um, I guess more broadly, Renee, what do you think go? What do you think makes a great fly rod? Oh well, uh, there's, there's 
two answers. A real quick answer on that now is, of course, um, you know, there's really not a lot of bad product out there now. And um, uh, yes, I'll have a beer. <laughs> um, and um, so um, I, I think, you know, across all brands, the quality of product now is is amazing. And so uh, I think it's, it's, it's a, a great tribute to all the effort that goes into um, – uh, you know, product development. But um, I, I think one of the keys is this movement away from ultra-stiff rods, which you have to work hard. And, you know, guys who can cast really well can throw it in the um, car park and throw a really tight loop, and it looks awesome. But they're terrible for cast, uh, for fishing, and they're also terrible for most people getting into the sport. And so... I think um, you know it's a really nice move away from um, these hyper stiff rods, which are hard to work, into rods which you know flex really nicely, um, bend closer to the grip, and still have this really great recovery. So they'll throw a long line, and you can do a lot with them. So for me, that's that's what a perfect rod is. It gives you it's a great tool that you can do a lot with. Yeah, and I guess in the more modern day fly rods, what are we, what are we sort of looking at? What what do you think? What's your take on where rods are getting better? Oh, there's no question. Um, so we obviously do two things. So um, design our own rods under Primal brand, and then we um, work really closely with Jim at Scott Fly Rods on um, on, on his product as well. And so um, I, I think across the board what we're seeing is, um, so rods are made out of a pre-preg, so it's a... Um, it's essentially a material which is carbon fibre or glass fibre um, pre-impregnated with a resin. And, and the, the fibre is not really changing. So generally you can get high modulus fibres now which are absolutely more or less the same as what they were 20 years ago. What's changing is the resin. And so uh, there's obviously a lot of talk on um, uh, res- uh, different types of resin like nanotechnology or um, graphene and... Um, Generally, other pixie dust that goes into the resin, but what 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 the key is is that that plastic's getting a lot stronger, so you need less of it, and so these rods are getting um, uh, physically a lot lighter, um, and that lightness uh, has a secondary effect of not just being light in the hand, but they feel a lot more responsive, they feel a lot crisper, and uh, uh, I think they're a lot nicer to use on the water. So the the modulus is changing, or is it just uh, not really? And uh, so, generally, um, people aren't using higher modulus than they were um, ten, twenty years ago. So in MSI, they're using around that fifty-seven, sixty-five, and above that point, the the rods just don't bend, and um, and and it would only be such a tiny amount in a butt section that's pretty irrelevant, but. Generally, modulus isn't changing. It's it's resins, and um, and that's changing, changing yeah. the um the action on the rod. Right. So, um, talk us through the I guess the different um the different scrims. So there's a um we were chatting earlier about it, but there's yeah. a, f- a fiberglass scrim that was considered one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. Just talk talk us through the the th- the three main types of scrims. Yeah. So there's um so a scrim fiber or um. What these are is, is, is reinforcing fibres which um, create hoop strength. So obviously a rod's a tube, and uh, if it doesn't stay in that tubular shape, uh, it's going to break. And so really what you need to do is not only do you have 
fibers running along the length of the rod which create the action you need fibers running around the that tube to um to maintain the strength the kind of critical angle um uh, where those um fibers work really well is at the 45 degree angle and off off that 45 they tend to to lose their effectiveness but um so um there's multiple ways of doing it the the classic way is um is, a, is what's called scrim fiber which is like a it's like a woven material which sits on the back of the prepreg so you roll it and um and essentially you've got a little cross weave which creates that um uh, the hoop strength um and um so other ways you can do it so there's some movement from um glass scrims into carbon scrims there's um so essentially that that material is is rather than being fiberglass it's it's carbon fiber um then um Loomis in early days they had um a, a what they called an omnidirectional scrim which was um more like a little felt mat um and um so that um again just got wrapped on the in the core and that created um uh some the strength there uh, and then generally what um, the higher end rod builders are doing is they uh, um, they're not using scrim fiber they're actually just laying out those materials um by hand or or, or in the design so it's a, what it means is it's a lot more cost costly um, rod design and it's also um a lot more um yeah, costly to build the rods because there's loads more layers. It's not just a simple material that you buy once and roll it on a, onto a mandrel and then um, pump it out the other end. So, and there's a lot more to go wrong. So um, you have to really get it right. So, um, and that's essentially what um, you know what Jimmy's doing at Scott. He has um, a technology called Arc, uh, and now it's Arc Two, which are these really like wicked, um, super expensive fine uh, diameter Japanese um, fibres which um, they are literally hand laying out in critical places to create the actions and you know that guy's an absolute genius on how he creates these incredible um, deflections um, uh, with these rods which are light but still super super strong Um, uh, with um, Primal and our premium rods we use a a carbon helical which um, runs at a 45 degree angle which is hand laid up and that gives that really really um, nice crisp rod and um, a good kind of um, uh, you know incredibly strong um, hip strength so how does the mandrel relate to all that oh so um, so the mandrel is essentially a, a stainless steel rod which um, creates the taper and so um, you, um, you you're obviously running um, the material on the outside of the mandrel the the Mandrel may, um, it could obviously have a fast taper or it could have a slow taper uh, or it can be multi-tapered. And generally, um, you know, the more advanced rods will have complex multi-tapers. And so what you might find is, um, you know, the butter rod, butt of the rod may be a little bit more um, slower taper, so it's a bit more parallel. Um, in the middle of the rod, it, um, that taper speeds up and then towards the tip of the rod, it becomes a little bit more parallel again. Was that a fairly recent development in fly rod design, the multi-taper? Um, it's probably just a more recent um, addition to people's marketing um, uh, story. But, um, look, I think everyone's probably been using... Um, I think once people have gone into um, multi-piece designs or four-piece designs, which is, you know, a number of years ago now, is uh, everything was really going multi-taper. But, um, I, look... What's happening is that the, these tapers are getting more and more refined, 
And of course, people have got CAD software. They've got um, you know designers like Jimmy uh, into the detail and really absolutely refining these things. And um, just remembering, loads of people can't tell the difference, right? On um, and so the art of the designer is getting each of these models right down to the T. And so again, I'll give Jimmy a pat on the back as you get these phenomenally awesome series of rods which are just a great collection together and they work together because these rods are not only designed for purpose but they, um, you know, are very, very complex builds all the way through. So I think fly rods for me are, a, you know, an absolute thing of beauty of how they're created. Are they able to, uh, like, come up with a, a flex profile that they're looking for and then work backwards from that flex profile to create the mandrel and, and the sections of the rod? Uh, yeah, more or less. Um, What's the first thing? Does it come with the material and then trying around, like a bit of trial and error and seeing how it bends? Or is it working backwards from the flex profile that you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I think everyone probably will work, you know, start from their, um, you know, more or less from their um, CAD designs. And then um, I, I think that the, 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 the journey from there is probably the um, absolute you know, the, the artistry of um, refinement and I, 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 my feeling is that most people are moving from there into, you know, casting, tweaking, feeling because it's really hard to do that on a computer, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and that's it. But remembering um, it's not just about um, a, a actual deflection of how the rod curves, they... How you m use materials throughout the blank can really transform how that blank um, recovers. And so um, by, um, you know, the use of different materials throughout the blank can actually really um, transform how that, that rod recovers and, and the kind of speed and cleanness it brings into the loop. That's no, fascinating. Boys, any questions? Yeah, I've got one about Scott Rod. So obviously you're looking at a Scott Rod and yeah. they're beautifully finished, un unfinished. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at that 45-degree angle, you can actually see it on the rod. Yeah. Behind that first layer, is that then different? Is that cross-woven and, and other bits and pieces? Yeah, so actually the, what you're looking at on the outside, so um, what Ross's question is really is on a um, – on the outside of a Scott rod is that the, the blank's not ground, so you actually see a little ridge all the way around the outside. So the interesting thing about that is when you make a rod, so remembering we've got um, this pre-preg and we put it on a um, steel mandrel, and then to hold it on that mandrel, you essentially run, it's it, it's like a tape, it's called Celerap. And so everyone will um, uh, use a similar process, and so you're essentially running really tightly um, this plastic tape along the um, mandrel uh, over the pre-preg to hold it all together and then you put it in the oven. So when um, the, the resin essentially cooks or, or, or it cures in the oven and um, then you pull it out and you take the, that plastic tape off and that plastic tape leaves a little um, indentation on the outside of the resin and that's what that... Um, that's what you're seeing. So you're actually not seeing fibre moving. You're just seeing little indents in the resin. Yeah, um, cool. And that's what that that's sort of a natural finish is on a rod. So the reason Scott stay with a natural finish, and you'll see this on um, like a lot of um, – I just love fishing rods, right? So I, I'm really into like Japanese um, stick bait rods and casting rods and stuff because 
one, it's awesome. And um, two, it's just more gear to buy. But um, the and you'll find that they all have unground blanks. And the reason you don't grind a blank, and this is the reason Scott do it, is a couple of reasons. Is one, if you've got a blemish in a blank, the easiest way to do to get rid of that is you grind it and you paint it out. Um, another thing is um, if you the grinding process sounds really simple is you just run um, your blank through little sanding plates um, and it'll take those ridges off and then you can paint it and you can paint it pretty colours and, and chuck it on the shelf. The downside is that grinding is really imprecise over manufacturing. So if you have new sanding plates, it takes off more. If you push it through faster or slower, it takes off more or less. And so grinding can be one of the most imprecise parts of this manufacturing process. And remembering we just talked about getting all these materials in the right place and all this kind of stuff, and then some dude in the factory ground too much material off and just totally transformed that blank. So for Scott, you know, the, the, the mindset is, well, the reason the best way to make a rod is unground, so you get this perfect action and it's faultless every single model. And uh, and that's that's the reason. Yeah, cool. And any is there any Euro rods on the lineup? I know Primal have got some new ones. Are Scott thinking about getting into that scene? Um, at the moment, no. And um, I think it's um, it's probably just literally not their gig. Yeah. Um, and I think um, where Scott, um, you know, again Colorado um, company, and look, uh, look, there's. Plenty of people um, euro-nymphing in the US now, but um, I think their their heritage is this small stream, so they do um, you know incredibly well with um, uh, F-series glass rods and uh, G-series presentation rods and uh, obviously centric fast action. So that's kind of where their their core is, and then their um, you know their other part of that is that whole group of anglers and and Jimmy himself go and fish the keys. They go you know saltwater fly fishers they they're off season, so it's it's not like a different world that they're manufacturing. There is that it's the same group of anglers who are going and doing that. So, so they're two real strong worlds: is um, saltwater and, um, and 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 that that so hard, hardcore trout stuff. Yeah, sticking with what they know and they've perfected. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Totally. The only thing um, you'll definitely see coming back is probably um, uh, a little bit more focus on two hand again from from Scott, and that that stuff's probably just. Uh, in the pipeline. And fiberglass, you know, Scott make arguably the best fiberglass mm-hmm. fly rod. What, how do you see fiberglass? Is that something you're a fan of personally? I think, um, uh, you know, so again, not to knock people, but I think there's probably some of that fiberglass world's been a little bit overinflated. Uh, I think uh, where I think it's actually incredible and a really the right design and the right material for uh, the tool is when you're fishing for small streams on uh, small fish on really tight streams, and so what I'm talking about is you're casting one or two um, rod lengths as, as far as leaders concerned. Th- those things, because at that length, when you bend the rod, it's flexing the same as when you're casting, you know, uh, 35 feet with a nine foot five weight. So the actual the bend in the rod is really similar. So what I probably am not a fan of in glass is when people are trying to build glass rods to throw 60-plus um, yards a line because 
to be honest, there's better materials for it. The rods are a carbon rod's way lighter for, and and just going to do a better job. So it'll be a while before Manic releases an eight weight fiberglass rod. Yeah, it'll be a long, <laughs> time. It'll be a, be a long time. I might not be involved at that point, uh, but yeah, I think small uh, twos, threes, and fours, and short lengths. And I think again that shorter length is is really good for glass. Um, uh, I think those those things are magic. Yeah, sweet. Um, just while we're on materials, some other brands are experimenting with different materials, materials such as graphene. Do you think there's any promise in that? Yeah, so graphene, um, I um, have played with some graphene. Um, so interesting enough, if you um, read about graphene, it, it's, it sounds like... Um, it's, it's a transformation of fiber, but um, and so it's it's really um, again, um, yeah, you know, carbon atoms in in a fiber form, and um, but my understanding of how graphene is actually being used is um, it's graphene is is in a resin filler, and so uh, the best way to kind of explain um, a resin filler is um, you know um, like sand and concrete, so sand. Um, it creates some structure within um, concrete, and, um, and and so it makes it, it makes it stronger, right? And so um, resins will have fillers in them to um, to make them stronger. And so if it's um, graphene or um, a, um, a, a nano filler, essentially what they are is really really tiny particles which are in the resin to make it stronger. And those really tiny particles start to operate more at a um, chemical level than um, just a physical level. So, uh, you know, sand and concrete, physical, um, versus these nanoparticles or, or graphene work in, um, uh, you know, a, a chemical level. So they start to change the structure uh, of the plastic and they make it, um, you know, incredibly strong. And so um, I think, um, uh, you know, there's some real um, validity to graphene uh, um, and it, it's it's... So we're using nano um, in ours. I, I think it's a really similar technology um, from what what we've tested and what, what I understand. My um, belief is where those um, uh, uh, materials or, or additives are, um, are really effective is in um, actually in that hoop strength fiber. And so in the longitudinal fibers, when we've tested it, it hasn't really. Um, transform the rods or give it more strength or anything um it's really in that um and so again i don't know where everyone's actually put using the fiber is, is uh, or, or these um additives yep. is everyone tells tells you they've got pixie dust in their rod and you know it's hard to know where that pixie dust is and and what it's actually doing but my general feel is and what we've tested is um this um like uh, with nano, we use it in um, in primal raw and primal um, mega, and in the um, eurozone, and um, that's it's in the helical. It really transforms hoop strength, and so it's really useful there. When you put it on the um, longitudinal fibers, it actually doesn't seem to improve anything in there. It doesn't improve strength, doesn't change the action, and um, so uh, we don't use it. And how are you measuring these different types of strength, like hoop strength? Oh, uh, literally on and brake tests. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. see so, how much a rod can take. Yeah, yeah, cool. Does that get expensive? <laughs> Everything's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, one of the, the, the terms that uh, – this has always shit me, but people were talking about um, fast-action rods and fast-tapers, and there's a, there's a big difference between the two. Can you just talk about that? That those terms sort of being thrown around and, yeah. and how different they actually are—a fast tapered rod in comparison to a fast action rod. Yeah. So, um, so taper is. Um, should I relate it to jeans? People might know what jeans are like, um, but um, yeah, you could taper is probably everyone understands is it goes from thick to very very thin, um, uh, and, and uh, versus you could have a um, slower taper. And it could, it, it's the the rods a lot more parallel all the way through. So, um, so that's probably that's taper. Um, action is um, uh, I, I probably wouldn't use it. You, I'll probably take the word action out of it. But I um, um, I think recovery rate's probably the um, the critical thing is how quickly that blank actually recovers. So when you bend it, how quickly does it straighten? And that's really where the materials come in. So. Um, I, there's so many variables, and they it can even come down to building. Um, how you build the rod out and with components um, makes a massive difference. So, what that is is when you you bend the rod. Um, obviously, with the weight of the fly line, you stop the rod, and then the rod straightens, and the the rod throws the line. So that's how fly casting works, right? So you're not actually throwing the um, fly; you're you're throwing the line. The line is really thrown by a straightened rod, which which kind of propels the line forward. So technically, the faster that li- that rod straightens, the faster the line's going to go, and um, that's generally driven by um, materials. And so um, you can, um, if you've got these higher modulus materials, which uh, will recover quickly. Um, the other thing is that uh, again, those um, resin contents. So if you've got, um, you know, you've got less plastic in there, and so these fibers are actually doing everything they can um, to um, uh, straighten and they're not being slowed down by loads of resin or loads of plastic around them. Um, another thing which is quite a big deal uh, which people probably don't notice is um, actually your components. So if you've got really heavy guides, so um, so you know some of the cheaper rods will have a really thick wire guide um, or um, those tend to slow down the recovery of the blank. And when you wiggle it in a shot, it actually doesn't always make as big a deal as when you actually casting, you know, you got 20 yards of line back behind you on a back cast and you throw it forward, that physical weight of those guides with that much speed is actually really significant. Does that come down, even down to the amount of epoxy that's securing that yeah. guide to the blank? Yeah, absolutely. So finish is, 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 is a classic one. So, yeah, the amount of epoxy. Even paint will, um, I, I think, you know, some of the... Rods are just really heavy kind of paint jobs on them. I think that all adds to weight and uh, dampening. So what other component-based things are you looking for in a primal rod and uh, the sort of things that have gone into the design in a component sense? Oh, I think, um, uh, you know, we will obviously just um, opt for, um, you know, the higher-end rods have got a titanium frame stripping guide and um, silicon carbide um, inserts. So, the, you know, some of those guides are like, um, you know, they're expensive. If you bought them at retail, some of them are $30 guides, you know. Uh, and um, reducing weight on, um, on on guides is quite a critical thing. And so certainly when you move up the um, the range, uh, Euro is a really classic one where you want really the lightest wide guide um, you can and, um, you know, just to reduce that um, effect on swing weight, especially on a longer rod, it's important. 
What about down to the grip? I think grips are um, actually really critical. So it's that's a really interesting one. So again, how you hold a euro rod is very very different to how you hold a fast action rod. To again, how you diff- different how you have a a, a two handed rod or a um, uh, or a trout presentation rod. So um, both um, different. And another thing that happens is so if it's a fast action rod, you tend not to have the the rod um, blank bending into the handle. And so versus with a presentation rod, you want to feel that blank all the way into your hand. So, yeah, that, that grip shape is really critical. Is there anything, um, going back to that, like when you talk about tapers, is there a particular trout taper over a saltwater taper over a Euronymph taper? Could you give us some examples? Um, yeah, so um, here's, a, here's a couple of classic ones. So um, an interesting one, and I'll just bring it back to Scott. So... Um, so you'll notice on a, a Scott G series, it's um, uh, got an internal ferrule, so it, rather than a fit over ferrule. So a fit over ferrule is the, is the type of ferrule you'll see on ninety nine percent of uh, fly rods out there. On a Scott G, you've got an internal. It looks like a really old school ferrule, um, and there's a reason for that. And so that that rod has a really slow taper. Um, versus, uh, if you kind of just imagine this, this is a little bit hard to uh, um, describe over um, audio, but um, with a fit over ferrule is the section below, so the butt section needs to be skinnier at the top than the section that goes over the top of it. Got of course, yeah. we've got a taper going in the opposite direction, right? So we're trying to make it skinnier, but we have to keep going bigger, right? So, so there's a real problem in creating a slow-action rod um, that um, has an, a fit over ferrule. So with a Scott G series, um, it's a really complicated and expensive build, which most people don't do anymore. But you've got internal ferrules, so the idea is you can keep this really flat, parallel flex, which is really smooth taper, um, and those ferrules enable it to happen. Other than that, you would have this um, this this. You're trying to make it thinner, but you, you're going thicker all the time. And then what happens is you end up with um, so much more mass and weight in the wrong parts of the rod. And um, so that's probably something that happens in design to really get the right flex, and that's, uh, say, Scott G, and they do the same on the F-Series. Um, how we would design a, um, say, saltwater rod, freshwater rod, and Euro. So saltwater rod's definitely far more lifting power. So you're not necessarily just looking at that butt section for holding up a long cast. You're looking at that butt section for pulling, which, to be honest, you know, we catch some big trout, and you guys do too here. Um, you still don't need loads of power um, for pulling on a trout, but you do in salt, so that's a critical thing. Uh, I think in um, Euro it's really about balance, um, and um, so those um, actually... We talk about multi-tapers. So in Euro, those tip sections tend to be very long and parallel, so you're trying to keep it skinny for as long as possible. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Is One, so you've got that nice tip that folds away. The other part of it is so that you've got... Um, uh, you're keeping the weight away. So other than that, you've got this really heavy tip. Um, I worked with a rod earlier, not one of ours, but um, they had a really heavy tip in it. And, um, and it wasn't here. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, you know and 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 because that tapers they're 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 creating a classic trout taper and dragging it out onto a ten and a half foot rod 
and there's too much mass in the wrong place. And that, to me, is going to be really hard to work on the stream. If it's hard to work and it's tiring on your wrist, you're really not going to feel anywhere near as much as you could if you get that taper right. Um, and then trout rods, yeah, I, I think we're all probably on the same wavelength of what's happening now is these we're trying to create trout rods which, you know, create nice long line control um, or, uh, with um, a level of sensitivity so that you can fish a dry fly one moment and then you can drop it down and um, and put a couple of tungsten beads on and, um, and buff that out as far as possible. And I think that's that new um, version of a, a fly rod that can do um, anything, anything you put to it. Any legs in one-piece rods, do you think? Oh, um, I think one piece endlessly reeks of effort, but um, we, um, uh, so I'd say like a... a Jetstar are generally pretty understanding with sporting equipment. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Look, I, um, uh, I, I personally cannot envisage the benefit of a one-piece rod. The, the downside on transportation is just beyond belief bad yeah. but um i have um so scott do a two-piece they do an eight foot ten two-piece um series i have one of those um on my boat in auckland which we chase kingfish on and uh, one of the benefits of that is um essentially you're reducing you're removing that bottom feral and so that um is um really great so it gives you a little bit longer um power zone for lifting um so um i, I think for me, that's uh, I, I like it and I can feel it. To be honest, the four-piece rod is just so good. It, it you know, it, to be able to travel with it, it's, it's far more beneficial. Yeah. But if you, um, so you know, I, I know a bunch of the guides. Um, we've got like um, uh, Rod Collins and Dave Bradley and stuff are using um, two-piece Scots um, for the guiding, and and um, and and they can tell the difference. Um, and um, and I again, I've got it because I fish it off a boat and it's easy. But I think if you're travelling, hey, look, you're not losing a lot on four-piece, but that benefit is probably in the tip section rather than... Uh, sorry, in the butt section rather than the tip and on lifting power and salt water. Yeah, I guess that convenience of a four-piece outweighs any better casting you would get out of a single piece. There was no point in breaking the rod on the way to, to your trip. Well, um, that's it. You're dead yeah. right. Um, so you've been in the industry uh, for a long time, Renee. You you know you've obviously seen it change pretty dramatically over what, what's it fifteen? Oh, it's like nearly twenty. Twenty five years, yeah. Oh, jeez. I know. Yeah. Well, I'm forty five now, so yeah, I've kind of well, I've been really you've aged bloody well, haven't you? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so I, I guess I've been working actually in, in fishing tackle retail. Probably started when I was seventeen, so I don't know, it's a bit longer than twenty five. Yeah. Um, what have you seen change? You know, do you, have you, do you like the direction? Yeah, I, I like it. I, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's loads of different people getting into the sport. It's far more accessible. I think that's awesome. I think there's um, a really good. Uh, I love um, the tackle side of it because one, it's, it's it's my life and business. But it's really cool that uh, we've now have nymphing technique, which has come from Europe, and we have two hand techniques, which yeah, okay, it started in the UK and in Europe, but actually all this gadget stuff, which is the real transformation and fly lines and stuff, has all come out of the US. I think there's some really interesting 
fly fishing has become global and really different. And um, I think it's cool because what that enables us to do is, yeah, catch more fish, but also just enjoy different experiences on the water. I think sometimes, yeah, it's, it's, it's great upstream nymphing all day, but then sometimes it's good actually putting on a wet fly and just doing something different. And for me, rather than going, um, you know, I think in, in saltwater conventional fishing is – there's loads of different species, and yeah, and fly fishing is there's loads of different species. Sorry, and fly fishing in saltwater, there's loads of different species, but generally we're just catching trout, right? And so it's cool having a loads of different ways to catch a trout, and I think that's what we're seeing now is people are just doing different stuff, and it's wicked. Yeah, there's always another chapter, isn't there? Yeah, you're never going to get tired of it. Yeah, and, and I think there's um, the no one's going to live long enough to do it all. You're, <laughs> your own nymphing for bonefish. Oh, it's all possible, right? And, and I think um, the, you know, and we've all been in this industry for a number of years. Obviously, I'm older and, which is frightening. And but, so um, much wiser. <laughs> but um, I think the cool thing is, is we can't know it all. We, we need to ask other people and we need to, um, you know, learn along the way. And that's, that's the cool thing about the sport. It's grown so much. It's beyond what one or two pe- people can do. And that's, that's what's making it cool. Mate, and uh, Manic Tackle Project have been a, a bloody big part of that growth too. I think you uh, should pat yourself on the back just uh, given the amount of energy and, and time that you've put into it. it. It's obviously, it's showing. You know, people learn from the content that you guys push out and um, the whole industry is better for it. Um, really appreciate having you here, sitting you down and, and putting you on the podcast and taking the time. Um, meanwhile, you know, we've been chatting and uh, Scott Santalakis of uh, Wilderness Fly Fishing has been loitering around the store. There's 303 free listens right there. <laughs> <laughs> Check <my> pockets. <laughs> <laughs> his pockets, Roscoe. <laughs> <laughs> He's got bloody big pockets. Too. Better not touch royalty. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Chat into the hello. microphone, mate. <laughs> Say hello to the listeners, Scotty. Hello. They're still talking about your Lakes podcast, mate. Are they really? Wow. They want another instalment. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we're going to go out and grab a meal now. Um, you know, it's been great to have Renee here after a, a long uh, two, three years of, of not seeing him. So um, hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of the podcast and looking forward to the next one. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.